Welcome everyone to American Girls, the podcast. This is the show where we're reliving the American Girls series book by book. This is Mary. Allison will be joining us in one moment. We just want to get right to our interview, but before we do, we want to give a brief introduction to our wonderful guest. We were so, so lucky that she could make time to speak with us about all the great work that she's doing. Our guest today is Jay Mix, who is involved in the Dismantle the World War II Museum movement, as well as the host of the Self-Aware Millennial podcast. She's a wonderful creative artist from New Orleans who's doing a lot of great work in the city that has impact far beyond its limits. And we're so, so happy to bring you a conversation with her about her work with the World War II Museum and all a lot of the great work that she's doing. We're so, so excited to bring you this conversation. So without further ado, let's get right to it. We're so, so excited to have you here. This is such a thrill for us to get to talk to you, J-Mix. Thank you so much for making the time to be here. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Heard a lot about y'all, and I love my American Girl doll that I did not remember the name of. (laughs) But we're going to talk about that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we'll have lots of questions about that, I'm sure. I think it's a beautiful way to build mystery around your doll. (laughs) You know, so Mm -hmm. many people come on with this strong identification, this strong affiliation. Yours can be among the legends. Who knows? Yeah. Wow. Like start just a whole series on, okay, who is Jade Mix's American (laughs) Girl? Like, where does she come from? Let's find her, you know. I mean, (laughs) I'm ready. I'll get those wanted posters up or this missing posters up. (laughs) I'm here for you. I'm sure there's a picture of me, like nine-year-old Jade Mix. With my American Girl doll, I just have to go find it. <laughs> but w- let's get into this. So you told us off air that you and your sister um, went to the American Girl doll store in Chicago. Yes, me and my actually a sisters. There's two younger sisters of mine, um, and we all three of us. So let's say I was nine. We're like two years apart each. So nine, seven, and five all got American Girl dolls at the American Girl doll store in Chicago. It was around like Thanksgiving. I remember it was like snowing and it was windy and cold and nothing like where I live, right? I live in New Orleans. So, you know, this was great. Um, we get in there and we pick the doll and everything. I don't remember much about it. All I know is that we were there. And I remember my sister's doll more than I remember my own. My sister's doll was African-American. My complexion, like kind of tan. And she also had a sailor outfit. And that's all I can remember. But for some reason, I remember my sister's doll, one of my sister's dolls, better than I remember my own. Mm. So there's that. <laughs> Interesting. What does it all mean? I don't know. <laughs> all I know, and I know that my, I think my sister still has that doll. Um, as for where mine is, I actually, I think it's still at our family home, but it's probably locked up somewhere that no one can like actually <laughs> touch it. Because I think my mom, like, I don't know what it was. I wasn't a big doll person growing up. So like I got, I got like, okay, so y'all remember Life Size with uh, Tyra Banks? Oh my God. Iconic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I got like two Eve dolls one year for like Christmas. Oh my God. Like, back to back. You know, these adults didn't realize they were giving me the same gift. And like, <laughs> I just remember like the second time I got it, I was like, I already got this. And like, they just <laughs> felt bad. Anyway, back to the story. Um, wow. So, I was not a big doll person and I think, you know, 
the adults that were with me at the time realized, okay, yo, these dolls might be worth something. So let's just take this doll and put it in a special place. And maybe when she gets older, she'll want it back. So I think that's where my current American Girl doll is right now. Entirely fair. I mean, I wonder what's aged better, Tyra Banks's acting career slash entrepreneurial persona or your American Girl doll. I mean, who can say at this point? Tell me about it. Now how's an ice cream business? So... I don't know if you know about that, but... No, I did not. This is really tough stuff. So I'm sorry to have to tell you about this, but she has an ice cream brand. She's just rolled out called Smize Cream. Ah! <laughs> seriously? This is not a joke. When I, when I joke about this, I take ice cream extremely seriously. This is a real business that she has rolled out. And I think it's like insanely expensive ice cream. From what I've heard, it's like half a pint for like eight fifty or something. You're no. just staring at me. I don't. I don't know what to do with this. Like, are you okay? Should I, I call I, in some medical personnel? I think I would only try it if the names of the flavors of the ice cream were unique, like the name of the the company of ice cream, Smiles Ice Cream. You know? Yes, I agree with you. So your your trip to the American Girl Doll store maybe involved ice cream, maybe didn't. We we have talked extensively about our time at the store where we were treated very well, very grateful. We had like a whole afternoon tea uh, as adults, which was nice. Uh, but so you had this experience with the doll and then went on to work in a really big history museum. Was history something that was really part of your life or um, is like the forgotten memory of this doll? Like, is that a metaphor? Just like walk us through what happens after that trip. Ooh, okay, so I was nine <laughs> when I when I got the doll. Um, probably had her for a couple of years before you know the adults took the doll away. But um, as for me working for a history museum, I think my story is a lot like a lot of people that work for museums in general. Some of them work there because they actually love museums sometimes, and some people just kind of there because you know it's it's available. In my regard, I worked at the National World War II Museum here in New Orleans um, as a victory bell, which is basically a performer. They perform all around the country, the world, for active duty military and veterans. It's a USO style show that commemorates 1940s nostalgia, music, Andrew Sisters, all the the, the nine yards. It's like an hour-long show that they used to, that I, I'm finally starting to say it in past tense because I've been saying up until now, like we, like we, the Victory Bells, like I'm still part of the Victory Bells when I'm not. But um, yeah, so that's what I did there for four years. But I had a very unique experience as a museum worker there because I was performing. And I find it different because at least with what I was able to do there is you get to see a different side of people when you get to relive or help them relive those moments in their lives. Mm. Even for the people that weren't even necessarily living in the forties or whatnot, like we transform them back into that like time capsule. I said, we, but that's okay. <laughs> I'm just going to say we, cause I mean, once a victory bell, always a victory bell. But in regards to, the history of the Nash, of the of of the war i learned a lot throughout my time just being Bell because there were things we had to know for our our show 
we spewed out a lot of facts about World War II, um, music significance in World War II and everything. But the other thing that we did that was very unique to what we do as Victory Bells is that we are able to speak to people that lived during that time. We get to serenade World War II veterans that lived during that time and see them turn back into like their 2018, whatever year old selves, hmm. even for that moment in time, like seeing their eyes, like just like you see that shift and it's, it's amazing to watch. Um, another wonderful thing about the bells is that um, at least when I was there, we did a lot of outreach. We went to veterans homes. We went to plenty of spots where bitter veterans were, wherever they were, like we were going um, a lot of retirement homes and, um, VA hospitals and we mm. sang to veterans, World War II veterans and, you know, re- veterans of all wars. I know when I was there, they were just so excited to see us. Everybody that was around staff of these like nurses, doctors, like every time we would come in, cause we dress in 1940s attire, like head to toe. Wow. We have to do our hair, makeup, everything like from the, like everything forties. Um, and it's, it's a beautiful sight to see because it's very vintage. It's something that um, I think in this day and age, we kind of call it like pinup style rockabilly, whatever you want to call it. Um, but being able to kind of like dress like that almost daily, it can turn people's heads when you're just going down the street. When like, let's say you're like just getting off from a gig and like your hair is still in 1940s attire and they're just like, <laughs> no. <laughs> but oh, otherwise, like it's still like, I think I learned a lot as a bell on how I'm able to like style, like I learned a lot about being able to do my makeup and hair through being a victory bell. But back to the history part, I got to hear a lot of stories, personal stories from World War II veterans about their experience in the war, which honestly is better than reading about it in a museum (laughs) or in a book. Cause you get to hear it from them in particular. And one thing I've noticed is that I know one thing that we were definitely taught and this is just one of those like, kind of blanket statements that we give to everybody that serves in a war that is in the military. We'd say, thank you for your service. Um, a lot of them, especially who were World War II veterans, or at least the ones that I've come across with, they've said that, you know, they don't mind the gesture, but they still feel like, you know, yo, I was, you know, I was drafted. Like I really had no choice to be a part of this war. Like I just kind of did what I had to do to survive. And thankfully I survived to, to see what the legacy has brought. And I look at it from that regard because it it kind of humbles me and it makes me realize, you know, yo, like these are just regular people. Yes, they are heroes, but heroes are the people that you see every single day. You may not even realize it, you know? Mm. So, and I'm also, I should also, last thing I'll say before (laughs) we continue is I'm blessed to know um, actually right now the oldest national, the oldest World War II veteran in the country because he actually lives right here in New Orleans. His name is um, Lawrence Brooks. Wow. And he served in the army. And he was actually in his thirties, I believe at that point, like he was already fairly much older than the rest wow. of the veterans. So right now he is 111. He'll be 112. Oh my gosh. Yes. And he's still very spry. He has all of his wits about him. He can walk by himself. He can do like, he can still dance. Like he's wonderful. He does not wow. look a day over like 80. Wow. Yeah. 
I have so many questions for you. I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> yeah, um, it's, okay. it's exciting though. It's a good we feeling. Did look at those photos. We had to. We were looking at your photos and we saw you with the veteran. Yeah. And like he's he's 111 percent here and he's thrilled you're at his and clearly like probably better in better shape than I am at 34. So God bless. (laughs) Um, But something I'm really struck by listening to your story about your experience, like your path to your museum work is that you kind of arrived as a musician, as a singer who performed sort of in period, I guess. But it seems as though your work was really about listening. So I'm wondering, like really doing active listening and sort of holding space for these veterans that often don't feel acknowledged, not just for service, but just, you know, in society, we don't make a space for elderly people in a real way. A lot of times my first job was in a nursing home and I found that most of my job was just sitting and listening to people. And so I'm wondering kind of like from your own personal history, did you have relationships with your family history or loved ones where you kind of cultivated this listening as a historical act that you then used in your professional work? I don't know if I've had much experience through my family. I mean, obviously when the matriarch of the family is speaking, we all know in my family to listen as much as you can take as much information as you can, because you just never know. Like, when this matriarch may be passing on, you know, like she is Mm. saying these things. I say matriarch because I had a lot of matriarchs in my family, but this does not, this is not just like, it's not just matriarch to be patriarchs too. Um, But I know like, let's say like, for example, my great grandmother, I don't remember much about it because she died when I was about 11 or 12 years old. But from what I can remember, she brought the family together because of just her presence. and. You know, that's one of those things that I hope that whenever I do have kids someday, because I mean, I don't have any yet, but I hope that I'm able to do that for my own family. But in regards to listening to our elders and my elders, I feel like I always had that touch. I understand like when, like sometimes when they're saying certain things, um, depending on their communication style too, they may not be able to like communicate exactly what they need to say in this moment, but they will kind of talk around it a little bit to kind of get you to understand what they're actually trying to say. Um, especially if it has something to do with like, you know, what they want after they're gone or like, um, I know when my late grandma, uh, passed, she was just very good about like giving me all the recipes so that I have everything. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, to pass on because she knew like I guess of all of the grandchildren that she had that she had proximity with that I would be the one that would be able to take everything on and just like have it all okay if anybody needs the recipes I got them so you can get them from (laughs) me you know but yeah in regards to I, I learned a little bit from that through listening to my family and being able to respect my elders and everything. And I know I want to get, every time I say respect my elders, I start thinking about the fact that some elders don't respect their, their offspring. So it's kind of like, do you still mm. respect them? But we can talk about that another time. <laughs> when I listened to my elderly comrades while I was a victory bell, um, veterans and everyone alike, it did teach me that discipline to like, and it taught all of us, I'm sorry, not just me, but like all the bell discipline. Um, I know there's been plenty of times where like, we are like trying to get from like gig to gig. And then 
someone elderly, whether it's a veteran or anyone, like they stop us and they want to talk to us. They want to, you know, tell us about their story, about like where they were in World War II, whatever. And we try our best to like listen to them and actually actively listen to what they're saying. Um, because, you know, it makes them feel validated. And I feel like I learned something from it and I would want someone else to do that for me, I guess, at that point. And sometimes that's just a form of therapy for them because I've also noticed and I've talked about this with a few people. It may be nurses or maybe family members of these elderly, um, the elderly people that we are speaking of. But, you know, they've already said how like they dismissed any time that they talk about the war, they'll like dismiss them or like just pretending they're not listening or just try to be like in their own different world, um, maybe because they talk about it too much or whatever. But I'm not exactly sure, but I know like that's kind of also our responsibility as Victory Bells is to is to give them that attention, give them that active listening ear and try to take it all in. Um, I know sometimes it's hard for us because, you know, sometimes we're thinking about like, oh, we're going to miss our plane. But, you know, sometimes it's it's OK to miss that plane. But we never, we never <laughs> miss the plane. I'm so interested when you were talking about, you know, what kind of happens around the performances that you did. And in some of the books that we were just finished reading, the main character actually does a role very similar to what you're talking about. She's called Miss Victory, but it's very similar. And part of the so-called prize that she wins is that she'll go out and perform with USOs and she'll go and she'll perform for people who are serving. And in that version of the performance, it's like hyper patriotic. It's very, you know, colorful, red, white, and blue. So I'm wondering if you could talk about not just kind of what you actually did, but particularly, you know, in the past year or two, um, right up until when you were doing it, what did that feel like? You know, some of these like hyper patriotic songs, did it ever change for you? Oh, (laughs) okay. All right. So I'm going to be real. Um, I started my Victory Bell journey right after 45 became president. And I know for me in particular, my views on it were, I should be really happy right now to be a Victory Bell. I'm like, I should be so happy right now. But I could tell the switch in patriotism was definitely being more handed over to folks that I feel did not consider me fully American, if that makes sense, um, at least in this regard. And I know that it was hard for me, and especially some of the other bells that had been there for years, five, six, seven years at that point, to sing patriotic tunes, which is what the Victory Bells did, especially in the second half of their show, which is like the finale, um, being able to sing the songs and have a reason to sing them. Um, we had to find ways of, I mean, it's another thing about being a performer. We're great at, you know, making it seem like everything's fine, you know, but the way we're feeling internally is definitely something else. Right. So I know that my track of the bells, I had to sing the Lee Greenwood, um, proud to be an American song. Oh my God. Yeah. So <laughs> having to sing that I've met Lee Greenwood like twice, by the way, with the bells. So like, really? Yeah. Cause we've done stuff with anyway, sorry, going off track. 
I remember just feeling like I'm thinking about this. I'm literally representing America right now. I am the only black victory bell of the 10, 11 victory bells that we have in the entire city, the, the entire country. I think we had about 15. I was the only black one for like maybe two years. We had like a couple of others that have come through, but like throughout the duration of my four years, I was basically the only one. And having to sing that and most of the audiences that I performed for were, I didn't see any representation of my skin color in any of these audience. Like, I, so like, I was like, okay, I'm representing, but I just, I can't, necessarily always I can't completely identify with with what I'm singing with right now especially when it came to the patriotic stuff I should also prep preface the first half of the show is like 40s like 1940s Andrew sisters and then we transition into patriotic for like the last 30 minutes um but it was challenging to say the least um and throughout my duration I was there for four years so basically the whole presidency Um, I, you know, I really toyed with how I was viewed by others through the museum. Let's let's just say at the end of my career uh, at the museum, I felt tokenized and I did not want to feel tokenized anymore. And that's primarily why I left. And I didn't necessarily identify with anything that was happening in the future for the museum and in the victory bell so i said okay i think this is a great time for me to to head out and it just so happened to also be around the time that george floyd brianna taylor the whole uprising for black lives matter was going on and that's when around that time also dismantle national world war ii museum was started which i and a couple of other collective members also we organized a accountability site community, if you will, about at this point, I think we did, I forgot how many months. It hasn't been a whole year yet, but Dismantle National World War II Museum is a space for stakeholders of the World War II Museum, whether you're a visitor, whether you are an employee, a current or past employee, a donor, anything. If you are associated with the museum in any kind of way and you have experienced discrimination in any way, shape, or form, we encourage the community to send in testimonials anonymously, and then we would post them on the Instagram page. And we've done open letters to the CEO, the board members. We've we've mailed it, snail mailed like the letters to them and everything. And We've demanded responses. We've given out our demands and everything. We have not heard a word from them um, since then. But, you know, we're still doing our work to keep to, to keep holding them accountable to the things that they say that they want. Um, and, yeah, that's kind of that's kind of where we are with that now. I'm very thankful for the community and everybody that has contributed to the testimonials because it just gave a great eagle eye into like what is actually going on behind the scenes because with a lot of large organizations like the world war ii museum it's very easy to kind of gloss over or to make it seem as though like everything's just fine everything's perfect like we are here to give you information about the war but when you actually go to the museum you'll see that there actually isn't much about well there yes there's a lot about war like because war to World War II Museum is for people that love war, 
Um, it's for patriotic folk for show. Um, but another thing that the, another thing that came out of this man on national world war II museum organization was other petitions for things that need to be included in the national world war II museum representation wise, because there's nothing like barely anything about any African-American soldiers. Um, I've gone through the entire museum. Like they have made me go through the museum to just see if there's like anything that can be added, like African-American wise. And I really should not have agreed to do that, but I didn't know what I was thinking at the time. Sorry, that that's going off topic. But what's currently in the museum from the last time that I, w- I walked through it, there's a small little section. Let's just, I should also say that the, the museum has like five or six buildings at this point. Like it's huge. It takes like over a day maybe two days, three days to walk through the whole museum and like read everything and see everything. Um, But as for anything to deal with um, any soldiers that aren't white, there's not much in there at all. There's like one small section in one of the buildings, another small section there. It's definitely not, it's not diverse enough. It's not diverse enough. That's the best way I can put it. And to say that we live in a 60% african-american city there should be more representation and i've talked to a lot of african-american citizens here in the city and all around the country about their experiences at the world war ii museum and they were like i don't want to go back again because i didn't see myself represented at all including like the tuskegee airmen like there is no tuskegee airmen exhibit (laughs) at all there is a plane in like one of their buildings. It's called the Freedom Pavilion. But unless you know what the Tuskegee Airmen planes look like, you would not be able to identify it. There's no wow. indicator anywhere stating this is a this is the plane for the Tuskegee Airmen. But even then, they need so much more than that. They deserve their own building, really. So wow. I mean, yeah. I mean, I've not been to this museum. <laughs> I'll just put that out there. So I feel like your description of it just now is really helpful as someone who's never been to kind of imagine what this space is. But I imagine as someone who worked there, it, it must have been so frustrating to feel like you're performing for an audience that's not representative of the city that you find yourself in or of the experience of veterans. Like we know it was not an all white experience, combat experience, so many backgrounds that fought in this war. So I can't even imagine the veteran experience coming through this museum and this frustration. Did you ever feel during your time at the museum that there was an awareness by the administration either of like, wow, it seems like we only have white audiences at this show, or we we're only attracting majority white members to come walk through the museum. Was there any concern about that? Um, well, considering that also, I should say it, my position at the museum as an art artist, a performer, um, we weren't like there, we were there sometimes full time, but like, again, our experience there is different because we're not working on the administrative side. We're not working like with the workers that work there every day, like in the shops, um, you know, ticketing and all that. Like we, we don't get to necessarily like interact with them. So we don't know what's like day by day, day to day things, conversations people are having like on their lunch breaks or stuff. Cause like our schedules are completely different and we basically just kind of keep to ourselves. But from what I was able to get from what I was, cause I also have a lot, I have people that I know there that I've developed friendships, relationships with, um, and they've said that, you know, the, the, the conversation is there. There has been um, people that have brought it forth to HR, uh, to people on the executive team to see if they would do anything. 
from what I were what I from what I recall, it just wasn't taken as seriously. Um, I feel like if it was, then this wouldn't even be a this wouldn't even be a question right now. You know, um, I know that it's easy for me to see because. I'm like one of the only people, especially one of the only victory bells at that. And at least within the city, at least a couple of years ago, the victory bells are like one of the, probably the best paid gigs you could get at, in the city of New Orleans mm-hmm. as a performer, because we were literally busy all the time. And there's like 10, 10, 12 of us here in the city. And I think there's like four in New York. Um, so we're kind of all over and we travel all over, but I do remember like, always being aware because I would come out on stage. And like I said earlier, the only people that I was performing to were white. If I had that one black member though, that was sitting in that seat, I made sure to sing to them. Like, yes, I'm singing to you. Um, But the fact of the matter is, is that the only black audience members I would necessarily be singing to were working. They were working Mm -hmm. and serving the audience members they were the um yeah they were the 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 staff that was having to serve the audience and that's what really like just kind of drove me because even within the representation of the museum to this day which has actually the the numbers have declined in their african-american um working just staff in general within the last few months because of everything that's transpired but I would say that majority of their African-American staff have lower paid jobs, lower paid, you know, wages um, compared to the rest of the staff. And it's so inequitable considering, again, that we live in a 60% Black city. (laughs) Um, And it just seems, I mean, this is not common knowledge anymore, but like, or I guess it is common knowledge, but it should be more equitable. There's no reason why at this point, a place like the World War II Museum, which brings in so much for the city Mm. and tourism, they are like, they were like number one or number three in TripAdvisor for years. And like, they have all these accolades, they have the money. And there's donors that give like millions and millions of dollars for like structures to be built. And I'm like, give that to Mm -hmm. the workers. Give that to the people that are making the money for you to even be able to give money for a building or for a structure. Uh, It's it's so frustrating. And I know it's been a couple of months at this point since I've left the museum, but I've tried my best to kind of keep it because I still have to move on with my life, but I still care. But overall, I still feel like I don't know. I feel like my work there is not done, which is why I'm so happy and privileged to still be working with the collective members of the Dismantle National World War II Museum, just to continue to call to action things that they might be slipping on, basically. This episode is brought to you by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to advertisers for native podcast sponsorships. 
What does that actually mean? Well, for our purposes, it means that we don't have to run ads on our show for products and services we don't believe in. We take this community really seriously, so we've in an ongoing way been trying to match with products that actually meet our mission and our values and are things that we're proud to support. So Podcorn has been a really wonderful service where we've been able to log on to their site and find a bunch of advertisers who want to work with us that we're excited to work with as well. If you're creator and you're looking for brands that you might want to work with, Podcorn is a great option. They have a marketplace mission to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and control. And you never give up exclusive rights to your podcast. Click the link in our show notes to learn how to sign up and to learn more about Podcorn. That's right. So just head over to podcorn.com and get started today. So... When you were talking about, you know, people who go to the museum or maybe people who might come to see your shows, I think there's been a lot of smart writing about the Civil War and like the way that a lot of Civil Mm -hmm. War reenacting, particularly for white people, is a way to talk about the war and to not have other conversations. Right. And so part of what I do at my day job is labor history and trying to emphasize that the biggest labor revolt of the 1800s is not a strike, but is the self-liberation of enslaved people and like changing that to be like the first thing that we say and then everything else. But I think a lot of people like you can get involved with civil war stuff and not talk about slavery, or you can get involved with world war II and not talk about segregation and reading what you've posted. It seems like there's a lot of effort, I think in world war II heritage communities, this is going to get us on a Reddit (laughs) thread or something, but to to preserve whiteness, right? And to not make anyone uncomfortable. And I've been at events where segregation comes up related to World War II. And I think people don't want to upset white people in the audience, or they don't want to make it uncomfortable for, right, for people who are attending that kind of thing. Um, And so we're, people are still not really being forthcoming about what actually happened, like this important history of not just during the war, but immediately after, like veterans being cut off from services, the same opportunities. Um, But I think it's a huge problem in the World War II community. Like it's this kind of magnet for a certain kind of patriotism, which is like, I like the stories that make me feel good and I don't care about anything else. Yeah. Yes, I agree. Um, That was definitely, at least during the time that I was a victory bell, that was definitely even translated within what we had to sing as victory bells. I did not sing one song by an African-American artist. I was going to ask that. While, <laughs> like, we, I think there was actually an area in the show where we get to serenade the audience members, mostly uh. men. But, we'll, yeah, I know. Uh, yeah. We were, like, required to, like, sit on their laps sometimes. <gasps> and, like, just we didn't have to, but, like, it was, it was, like, encouraged. Oh, my God. Um, and yeah, it, yeah. So back to what I was saying. So the only song that we had in the whole rep of the Victory Bell catalog, which is about an hour, an hour and 30 to like two hours worth of music in whole, uh, was Etta James at last, which was not even a night. That's not even a period song. And I don't know. I remember right at the end of my career as a bell, I was like, why haven't we said a word? Why haven't we sang anything by an African-American artist or writer, but also in the history that we spew in our dialogue and our script during the show, there was nothing about 
any of the African-American writers or artists at all. And so like, I remember taking the suggestion because I think that, I think I told them like, which is like Lena Horn or something, Lena Horn, Billy Holiday. So I'm like, put one of their names in there. I don't care. And, um, you know, that's what they did. And like, that was the contribution I made. Like that was the only thing I was able to do. Um, I will tell this story, however, um, this Ooh. is a good story. Um, it's a good story because it's still something that it, it's, it's something that is a great, it gives you an understanding of how the museum is operating in regards to what we were just saying about how white people are not necessarily comfortable with um, talking about race. So before I left the museum, we had, uh, this was after the uprising of everything. I, I was making a ruckus about just being online, talking publicly about like how the museum should give out a Black Lives Matter statement and or just admit to where they have fallen short so that, you know, they could, you know, hold themselves publicly accountable and no one can come back and like, you know, start a whole dismantle National World War II Museum organization for them. So um, one of the solutions that we had imposed or that I was speaking about with some of the executives was that the entertainment department, which is what I was a part of, that we did a an homage, homage to the African-American soldiers. And in that, um, me and the other African-American victory bell at that point, um, we had already been talking about this. So we were like, ah, let's do Lift Every Voice and Sing. Let's sing Lift Every Voice and Sing, which is the Black National Anthem, if you're not aware of it. And, you know, that was going to be the contribution. So we did a whole production worth of a song. I They hired in a, two friends of mine. One was a choreographer. One was the arranger for the song. We had filmed it and everything. They were going to premiere it on Lawrence Brooks' birthday for his 111th birthday and comes around nothing. And so I was like, okay, cool. Maybe it'll be the next couple of weeks. Nothing. And at that point I had quit the museum. And I remember we had been doing like protests outside the museum and everything at that point as well. And I was like, well, you know, maybe they'll, maybe they'll do it soon. Nothing. So the point is that it still never premiered, even though we did like all this work. Oh my God. Uh, it still kind of gets me to this day that they haven't done it. I thought maybe they would just premiere for Black History Month a couple of months later. Nothing, nothing happened during Black History Month. But it kind of just goes to show you um, that and a few other examples, which I can go into if you would like me to, but... I think when it comes to erasing Black history from the National World War II Museum, which I do consider myself Black history in regards to the National World War II Museum, because I was one of the first, or I should say long running um, victory bells that were Black. Actually, I think I'm the longest running Black victory bell that they've ever had. And to know that they, because of my voice and because of everything that I have been speaking about against the museum or I should say speaking out in representation of the museum that they don't want to speak out for, for themselves. Um, they don't like that nearly as much. So they have just tried to erase me from the narrative by like cropping me out of like pictures and everything. I'm just like, this is oh my going gosh. way too far, but I think it really speaks to, to a bigger problem with world, how we talk about world war II, which is that so many White people in particular love the history of World War II because for them, it's a somewhat easy narrative that they tell themselves. Like, this was a time when the United States was unequivocally good and we were on the right 
side and we won the war and it was a war that had a clear end as opposed to the wars of our lifetimes, which have gone on for many of us for our entire lifetimes with no clear end in sight. And, you know, so it's an easy narrative for white people to tell themselves, like, we won this war, it was fought for good reasons, whatever. And the messiness of the fact that for Black Americans, for so many others who fought in the war, they fought overseas and then came home and had to fight for the same rights they secured abroad for everyone else. I mean, it wasn't a clear narrative. So in many ways, it's like it's kept out because it doesn't fit this convenient story, as Allison was saying earlier. And in ways, it's like the museum was founded by Stephen Ambrose and some others, but he's sort of guilty in large part for this greatest generation narrative that it was like entirely celebratory about World War II without complicating very real issues throughout the war as well. Yeah. And that's precisely what we've been trying to, at least within the collective of people that we have within our, our team for this male national world war II museum, we've been trying to, to hone in on that and help them remember, yo, like there's so much more you can be talking about, but because you're worried about your core Mm -hmm. audience right now, you don't want to start bringing that up. And you know, you're losing more people than you're gaining because these people are not going to always be here. The national world war II museum is not going to always thrive on old Mm -hmm. money. For, the, for forever, you know, um, and you have to start appealing to an audience that that already understands that, like, the war is, was so much more and it's not nearly as glorified as the history books have made it out to be. And I and I guess I do feel for, like, even the historians, but uh, the exhibits that are throughout the World War II Museum in particular, um, they're very whitewashed up. Uh, for good reason, you know, because the people that come through the museum most most of the time, like if they were to see something that were that they felt targeted about, I guess, like, you know, they would probably make a ruckus and that might lose them money. I think and I have to always remember the World War II Museum is a business and they know who their target audience is and they're not about to lose money. They don't want to mm-hmm. lose money. They know that it would not only fail them, but it would fail the city. You know, like so many people would be dependent upon that. There's people that work for the museum that would lose their jobs and everything. So I understand it from a business aspect as to why they don't want to take that risk. But I'm just saying that, you know, if you don't do it, somebody else will. And someone else, like, let's say someone else just creates the World War II Museum that they're not trying to create right now. Then they're going to be upset because they never went that way. You know, you know what I mean? Do you think that pop culture is helping or hurting this problem? Do you think that the way pop culture depicts World War II in movies, TV shows, whatever, is that just further compounding the problem or do you see any shifts in that? I think at the current moment, I mean, I don't know of any accurate, accurately depicted World War II stories that have come out in the last couple of years that weren't glorified um, in any sort of way. I mean, I've seen like shows that have depicted World War II in like their fictional narrative, but like I haven't seen anything that's like, okay, this actually happened. Um, but maybe I just haven't done enough World War II research to know, but I think that pop culture definitely does, it does kind of blur the, the narrative for people. Um, you have to really dig to know what, how it actually all mm. went down. Um, and that's the other thing about memories, like our memories that we have, like our nostalgia. Uh, it's very difficult to, especially if it's a really good memory, um, 
I find that when we are nostalgic about something, we normally make it out to be bigger than it actually was sometimes. Um, and I even say it's like psychologically, even like when not like in my childhood, I can remember very traumatic experiences that have happened with me and like other adults, but the adults in general remember it happening, but they don't, they didn't find it to be nearly as detrimental as I did. But I was like, no, this shook my world. I still remember it from like, like right now, you know, like, um, so it's just interesting, like how, how we process our memories and in regards to the war of World War II, I was not obviously there, but, um, the way it has been depicted has been, very much glorified, um, like you said, because it had a definite ending and it was a happy ending. So that's kind of like the the triumph. I appreciate the point that you made about like these aren't people who chose, and I think we don't talk about that nearly enough. That not only were people conscripted, but you had mentioned that this gentleman that you have a relationship with was in his thirties, and when you drill down into certain communities, whether they're um, you know, like heavily working class communities with a lot of people from other countries, or you look at like the Navajo reservation, which majorly was overly represented in the veteran population. It's not only, I will say this on every podcast. I don't care. Their museum isn't a Burger King. I have said this before on the show. I will, I'll say as many times. So the Navajo Code Talkers Museum, the actual museum isn't a Burger King because I've been there. So, but anyway, like that's true. Wow. So that's the respect that we pay to them. So wow, that's real. So, but to think of, you know, I think in a lot of the, the film, like it's still, and even the books that we just read, like the father, he, the father in the, the Molly books that we just finished, like he decides to go to war. Like it's a choice that he makes because he thinks the sacrifice is so important. And right. his daughter, Molly, who's the lead protagonist is like, dad, I, you know, like in the film version, I don't, I don't want you to go. And the family kind of shuts her down and says like, of course he's going to go, right? Like, of course this is the right thing. But looking at communities where people are already suffering and already have basically every system stacked against them, this is not a gift. Yes. Um, Yes. Sorry. That just resonated with me so much because I've been talking about this in my political education classes. By the way, I'm part of the New Orleans People's Assembly, which is a local organization here in the city of New Orleans that basically calls to action workers' rights and just anything to do with making sure that workers have everything that they need. They actually helped a lot. They dismantled, dismantled National World War II Museum and the People's Assembly do a lot together and they have helped out our organization a lot in, in regards to like our protests and whatnot. But one of the things that we were talking about in the political education class when we were starting to talk about war for a little bit was the fact that um, even just the recruitment of military is very mm-hmm. marketed. Um, they try to get you right out of high school, um, you know, and it's not guaranteed. You know, I, I think that at least with what you were saying, Allison, it's like they're recruiting you for a job in order to fight for a country that doesn't necessarily, that's, that's not even necessarily taking care of its own citizens. So you're going to go fight for another country that's not taking care of their citizens or whatever that other country is doing um, when your own country can't even do that for you. So like, why should you be fine? But the way it's marketed is the way is the reason why a lot of them 
And there's just so many like benefits. Like they'll say, oh, you got benefits. You have like X, Y, and Z things that you will get for life if you do this for X amount of years or whatever. And, you know, when it comes to, it's an enticing offer. And you think about, especially if you have a family, you, you think about like, okay, this is going to help my family. And you, you're thinking about others at this point. Um, but I, I, I find it to be more of a marketing strategy as to, and I, I hope I don't get people that hate me for this, but like, I, I honestly feel like just in regards to recruitment of military, it's very much that. And yes, though we do need people fighting for us, um, I feel like our security, however, I feel like our national security in the military, there's so much money that's put in towards our military and none of it is being put towards children's families, um, marginalized communities so that we can be in a better spot. And I mean, that's just overall. And even here in New Orleans, like 60%, 63% of our city budget goes to the police and all of their measures and only like 3% goes to children and families. And it's not right, you know, like we wouldn't need such a large budget for security and for all of, you know, if more money was put into children's families, job development, mental health, like, come on, you know, but priorities. Just what you're saying too quickly, like, I think part of it is an exploitation of really positive values that a lot of people have, like indigenous people are are very heavily overrepresented in the ranks of veterans in the United States. And I've I've heard it said before that part of that is there is an ethic of service and then wanting to be of value to your community. And so when people come to you and say that this is a way to be valuable and to protect people that you care about, it kind of directly hits on something that is important to you. Like I think for some people, I know just in my very limited experience being a freshman when 9-11 happened, like a switch was flipped and a lot of young men that I knew were suddenly very interested in the military, but it was also soaked into every video game, every movie theater. And then depending on what job you had as a teenager, that is how you ended up interacting with recruiters or not. They don't go to certain places at the mall, but if you work at other kinds of jobs, they're there every day. So there's, there's like this class intersection with it, but there's a target audience. Like, you're not going to see a military recruiter at a golf club. No. <laughs> you're not. You're going to see them at, like, a low-income high school. Uh, you're going to see them, like, at a mall, you said. Like, like places where, where people may or may not have a lot that they would need the military in order to sustain themselves. So, you know, that's where, that's where they get you. Um, and this has nothing to... I'm sorry, this has... I don't want, I don't want this to, I don't want this to seem as though like I, I hate the military. Like I absolutely love, like I have so many fam. I have family members. I have friends that are in the military. They are great people and you know, they're doing it for their families. They're doing it because they, they, they have plenty of reasons of being there. And I don't have a say in saying that they can't do it. I'm just saying that there is a market that they have place in the military as to like how to keep people to continue being part of the military. Um, 
And the glorification of it all as well is a, a thing. And as you said, like right after 9-11, there was other ways of keeping that going through the video games and just um, the Lee Greenwood songs being played on the radio every two minutes, you know, like just ways of keeping you, you know, patriotic and like happy for your country, which I guess in a way is good, but like also... Um, I still feel as though like in those regards, there's still a lot of blanketed things and things that are left out. Um, and I mean, we can even go into the conversation a little bit of how the military, at least during 9-11 or everything that's happening in the Middle East, uh, a lot of the craziness that's been happening has everything to do with the involvement of the U.S., but no one wants to talk about that because of, you know, how much they have intervened over there. But again, another conversation for another day. I have another comrade of mine, but that would love to go into a conversation (laughs) about that. (laughs) Well, I think a lot of what you're saying too, about, you know, not wanting to put any fault or judgment on folks that, you know, who are serving and who are proud of their service. I think it, it points us to kind of the importance of thinking of problems in a structural way. So not looking at individual actors and saying like, you're complicit in this or like, this is your fault, but kind of zooming out and looking at bigger structural choices that have created a lot of these disparities and are thriving as a result of them. And I think for me, one of the most tragic areas of this, and maybe you can comment on this because you toured them is kind of at veterans administration hospitals and how people get the way we care for veterans after they serve. And to me, like there's so much, you know, ongoing conversations about monuments in our country, very real um, objections to issues of representation there. And I don't want to take anything away from that conversation, but I do want to just shine a light for a second on something tangentially related, which is this idea of creating living monuments. So instead of building more statues, why don't we divert more of our budgets to funding veterans and their healthcare and job training and things like that, housing at a higher level. Um, And I don't know. So that's just kind of what your reflections made me think about. So I guess I can go into a little bit of my experience touring the, touring the veterans homes. Um, You were touring. I would own that. Yeah. You're on (laughs) tour. Um, Yeah. It's just interesting to like think about it in that way, like touring veterans. So, but uh, yeah, we went to like different uh, wards of the homes too, like dementia, uh, Alzheimer's and everything. And it was wonderful actually. Um, Before I get into the wonderfulness of it, I will say first that, you know, there was definitely different vibes in each area. Some of them were a little bit more lively, obviously, because, you know, they were more, coherent they were like here um but other areas that we went to they weren't and that was okay you know we were there in order to kind of give them hopefully something to like check back into and I know there's been there was actually a few times where we would sing and the bells not just me but like the bells in general we have sang veterans to heaven if that makes Mm. sense like they have literally like saying to them not even a couple of minutes later they passed on like stuff like that and we I know there was one time I went to I think it was the 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 Alzheimer ward um at one of the homes and 
I can remember them saying that because I think there was a family member there. It had been years since their their loved one had even like said a word. But when we started singing to them, they started singing with us. And I was like, well, (laughs) dang, like, you know, like seeing stuff like that, like really and hearing about it after, like we may not know in the moment because we're just trying to say hello. We're just trying to, you know, like be be with them. But like when we talk to like the families and nurses and everything afterwards and they kind of give us a a real background, like what just happened, you know, and why everybody's crying around us, you know, like it was just stuff that you don't, that you'll never forget. And you're just so happy to be, to have been able to contribute and not just like contribute, but like, I'm a singer, I'm a performer. So like being able to do this and know that like what I do, what I love to do for a living is allowing someone that has not spoken a word in like years to like sing with me, you know, like it's, it's so, it makes it so worth it. Um, especially when I have like, you know, harder times in my life. I'm like, well, at least I have like, I have done something of that nature. I can tell this to my grandchildren someday. I know the power of music and how it heals people, how it can bring people back. Um, I see people even to this day, like, like family members that may be a little grouchy, but like they, their favorite song comes on and they are just like in a completely different mode. And it's like, <laughs> oh, okay. I didn't know that you, you know, were happy go lucky, you know, da, 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 you know, but you know, music will do that to you. And so, yeah, I think that's why music in general just is so healing. But yeah, those, those wards in particular, the, the veterans homes, they are, some of them are actually more well-kept than others. And it just depends on where you go. Uh, I've been to one that looked like a hotel that felt like a hotel inside, like literally like, and I should say not just veterans homes, but also like retirement homes. Some of them are just like, they're good. Like I would want to <laughs> live with them there with them. You know, They have like pools, they have bars, casinos. What? And, like, I'm just like, yeah, no, Mississippi, Gulfport. There is a retirement home there right there on the beach. We're taking notes. Um, We're taking notes. Yeah. And there's a um, shout out to Charlie. I'm not sure if he's still there or not, but he's a World War II veteran. I believe he was a Marine, but he's there. Um, and that's another cute thing about the World War II veterans, especially when we go to the homes and everything. Like a lot of them, it's so cute because like, they'll be on their scooters and like trying to keep up with us as we're walking from like, uh, you know, place to place. And just to kind of see them in the background. I wish we like if we had if I was able to like Snapchat them or like Instagram story them like as they're like walking and just see them like walking with the scooter trying to like catch up with us. It's so cute. But anyway, I can't even imagine what that would feel like. And as you were talking about, you know, the performing, like I think a lot of what happens in a museum is a performance, whether people would want to admit that or not. But I think like what you're doing is so special in part because you're also validating that this time in their life mattered and that it was important and that it's important enough for you to try to recreate some piece of it for them. And I've had conversations with people who have served about the question of like, thank you, because I think for some people, like it can feel sort of artificial to say it. And it's like, there's many other things I want to say that I think will show gratitude. And I think what you're doing is like, you're living the gratitude instead of a quick thank you. Like, I think people who say thank you twice a year can feel really good about it on Facebook Mm. and they can repost the meme of like, while you're at the beach, they were storming Normandy beach. And it's like, I can click share too. 
but what is that actually doing for people who are maybe still suffering with the consequences of that? And it's like, you're, you're living that by actually, I don't know. I think my sister works in, in nursing homes and a lot of her job as a therapist is also just validating that there are still people and that they're not just like this category mm. elderly that's away from society or expendable, but saying like your whole life experience is really interesting to me. And like, it's really valuable to talk about. As I was saying earlier, like when we tell the veterans, thank you for your service. Thankfully, by the time we've done that, we've already done like a whole show for them and like have already shown our gratitude for them in that way so that they feel that thank you more. But like, that's how, like, as I was, yes, I was saying earlier, it's, it's kind of, like what other ways can we thank them besides just saying thank you? Cause like, again, like, yeah, like you said, like anyone can click share, anyone can just say thank you, but do you actually mean it? Do you know what you're thanking them for? Um, I know for me as a black woman, it's kind of hard sometimes to like say thank you for your service to sometimes the white veterans, because I know maybe this same white veteran called my grandpa the N word the other day, you know, like, you know, like, there's like so many other additives to it. I'm like, how many of these people didn't even like MLK? You know, how many of these people were happy that MLK, Malcolm X, all of them are gone? You know, like I think about, I literally would think about this stuff as the show was happening, like as wow. I was doing the show. Sometimes like as a performer, we get kind of check out, but we can still do the show, but we're like thinking about things as it's happening. And I know like so much of my experience Sometimes I was still, I'll be doing the show, but I'll be thinking that in my head because I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, I'm the only black person in this, in this entire, this entire room. Uh, what am I going to do? And then I just start thinking about all the other stuff, but that's, that's a real, that's a real thought. And I, I told myself I wouldn't put myself into that situation anymore. Um, I don't want to be the token black bell, the token black anything anymore, because I find that. I'm just so much more whole and I'm so much more comfortable when I'm around people that value me as not just a performer, not just a black performer of color, but like as me, like as me as a whole. And I was not necessarily, I can't necessarily tell that if I'm just in a room of people that I don't identify with. Um, and it's okay. Like I don't, I, I will put on a show for people <laughs> that I don't identify with. That is not the problem. It's just the fact that like, I don't have, unless I had a relationship with these people and I knew like what their, you know, what their backgrounds are, which is never going to happen. Right. But I just, I, I find it this time in my life, I, I can't, the money I made at the museum was great and it got me by. And that's what, let, that's why I mean a bunch of other people stayed for so long because you know, the opportunity was great you know, that we still got a holistic experience by being able to talk to these veterans, to experience what they've experienced through their, through their mouths, like through what they've told us. But it's overall, like I'd say to myself, I'm like, I can be a victory bell. I can still talk to these World War II veterans without being a victory bell. I can still show gratitude. I can still perform for them. I can still do all these things without having the World War II Museum as um, being a representation of the World War II Museum at this point. Um, I've definitely well past that. And as a performer, you know, I, 
not that I didn't feel a limit. Uh, I guess I did kind of feel limited when I was at the museum because we only did 40s music. We weren't able to do like other things. Um, but I think overall, just me as an artist, like wanting to grow, like I, I just, I felt like I wasn't able to do that anymore there. And the only reason I would have stayed is if one, the museum would have put out a statement that Black Lives Matter, I think that would have kept me there for just a little while longer. I think another thing that would have kept me there a little longer is if they would have put out the Lift Every Voice and Sing video. And then I think the third thing that would have kept me there is if the Bells and or the museum would have said, yo, this is what we're going to be doing in order to be more inclusive of the African-American community here in New Orleans. Um, this is what we're doing. We're going to add these many songs to the show in X, Y, and Z, but that never happened while I was there. So I was like, you know what? I'm out. Um, I'm not doing this. And uh, I want to be with my, my, my people and they're not here. <laughs> so, yeah. Makes sense. <laughs> I can't imagine, literally can't imagine what that experience was like for you. And I'm sorry that you had to deal with that. I kind of just keep imagining like what your show would have been if you could have picked the songs, like if you could have picked the content and you roller skate. I'm sorry. Like we didn't even get into that. We're a hard hour in. So I do also. And it's like, you are like a labor radical an organizer. You roller skate, you podcast, you victory. You have so much going on. Quintuple threat. Cause I keep imagining, you now thinking of the audience that you would have in New Orleans with a show choreographed by you, you would be on a roller skate. Would you do the whole thing on a roller skate? Question one. You're talking about like a victory bell show? Absolutely. Yeah. Like if we have, like, if you could have your dream victory bell show, I would definitely, what does that look like? So I actually have a good friend of mine. Shout out to um, Bobby Bonzi. Who's here local here in the city. Uh, very, very talented performer. Uh, founded the New Orleans Skate School here, which y'all should definitely follow because they are up and coming. <laughs> yeah, New Orleans Skate School. Um, they have done so much for the community already. They are very community-based. Um, Bobby is a frequent skater. He was skating before skating was cool again. Bobby can tap on skates. <laughs> That's what it is. So like, and he's also just like very trained in dancing. And so like, he'll do like Gene Kelly-esque uh, tap dance skating things. And I think one of the things we first connected on was like being able to like do a little bit of tap, skate tapping. Um, obviously he's much better than I am, but um, I think he would be great. If we were to do like a period show, to like have him and like obviously me and like someone else that anyone that can like tap on skates. I think that's just so fascinating. Um, but I would definitely victory bell or any 1940s S show. I would love to tap dance on roller skates. That is kind of like, that's one of my, that's like one of my bucket list goals that I want to accomplish in the next few years, if not this year is to tap dance on roller skates. Oh my skates. God. I want that for you so much. I can't even, I want to see it. <laughs> I want to support this. I want to come to your show. Wow. That's so cool. Oh my God. I don't know if like we've mentioned this, but Allison yeah. and I have different feelings about roller skating. Allison's like afraid of it. Like in high school at her all girls high school, they got a field day where they could all go roller skating for the day. And Allison used to beg her mom to let her like fake sick that day. Cause it was not her thing. I was sick. Just Aww. not in the way that society is ready to recognize. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for that edit. Yeah, that's true. Yes, that's true. Whereas I was like deeply into skating and I really liked rollerblading as well and skateboarding. So 
Yeah, I feel like the big, especially with roller skating, I feel like the 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 most common story right now, including myself, is that like so many of us started roller skating when we were kids. We would go to the rink and then like we got rollerblades and then we stopped rollerblading. And then like 10 years later, 15 years later or so, like roller skating became a thing during the pandemic. And now we're all roller skating again on quads. And that was my story. Like I started roller skating again on quads back in like August. And I've learned so much because I roller skate every single day um, out here at our local park called Crescent Park here. And another wonderful thing about being out there is that like everyone is out there. It's like mostly adults and the way that we connect with each other, we're all out there to roller skate. So it's like different. It's like being on a playground again Mm. with children and like being kids again on a playground. Like we are all there. It's rooted in play. Adults rooted in play and just being able to, to see people light up and just be happy because they are roller skating. It, it just brings me joy. And then like when people bring like these big old boom boxes out to the skating, to the skate area. So everybody is like in sync with each other, like dancing and whatnot. And then sometimes the school will be going on. They have kids out there on their little scooters. And then I'm sorry, there's not just like roller skaters out there, but there's people on scooters. There's, bicyclists there's skateboarders there's unicyclists we have like everything out there anything that has wheels is out there so um it's it's a it's a beautiful park and if y'all ever are in new orleans like i'll definitely like give you a tour i would love it of the city and crescent park um it's right on the river the mississippi river so it's a beautiful scenery of just the skyline the downtown and the bridge and everything um, but yeah, I've learned so much in the past seven months, roller skating almost every single day. And just the community that has developed from roller skating, even like I, this past weekend, I, um, I led a march. I didn't lead a march, but like, I guess I kind of did. I don't know. Depends on your perspective. Um, but the people's assembly for international working women's day, I was, for the first time on skates, chant leading the the chants as we were marching. And I was on roller skates. And there was a couple of other skater comrades that came out too on their roller skates. Um, and we skated the entirety of like the New Orleans French Quarter, which if you've never been to New Orleans, it's they're, they're not the best streets to roller skate on. But somehow the revolutionary guys were with me and I did wow, not fall. Very once, impressed. So. Yeah. This is just mind blowing. Yeah. I mean, so this is such a story of hope for our listeners. Like if you're an adult who was on our trajectory of you dude roller skating, then rollerblading and then got out of it, it is possible to come back and reclaim your roller skating vibe. Yes. It most def- it most definitely is. And it's funny, after we finish this call, um, I'm actually about to go <laughs> roller skating tonight. There's like an adult night here. Shout out to uh to Gay country on the West Bank here in New Orleans. Um, they have an adult night every Thursday, 8 to 11. They play like the best hits. The DJ's always really good. And the music is like bumping. Like I'm, I'm so stoked. But it's something that all of us, and it's the same thing. Like when, when you, it's like when you put on your skates or like when you see something, how could I, if you don't skate, I'm trying to give like a best example of like how it feels it's like when you're going to 
like a Disney World or to an amusement park, somewhere that you know is going to be thrilling, but you're not there just yet, but you like see a picture of it or you, you see it in the distance. You see people going on the roller coaster. You see the roller coaster like moving and you're like already still like, that's how it feels when you just, when I just like look at my roller skates and I'm wow. about to put them on, you know? So knowing that kind of thrill that it gives me that sort of, um, sense of affirmation I guess um I think that's why I just keep doing it and um knowing that other people feel the exact same way like I keep myself in community with those people uh because it's a way for all of us to kind of stay sane together during this pandemic totally so, agree. well we don't yeah. want to keep you from your skates that that's the last thing we would want um so before we let you go <laughs> where can people find you and how can they support you and what you're doing awesome yeah so First off, follow me at jmexplainsitall on Instagram. That is my main page. If you want to hear me talk some more, because I talk a lot, I actually have a podcast, as they were saying, we didn't talk about it much, but I have a podcast called The Self-Aware Millennial. We just made a year Congrats. a couple of weeks ago. And thank you. Yeah, um, I didn't think this was, it wasn't even necessarily a pandemic thing I did either. I, I started it right before the pandemic hit, not realizing that I would just like make a whole a whole almost business out of it. Um, but I talk on there about mostly mental health issues, but also just uncomfortable topics that millennials go through. Um, I definitely hone in on polyamory a lot and being black and polyamorous because that is something that's kind of hushed away, especially in the black community. Check it out. Um, but yeah, overall, that, that community is just there for people like myself that are ready mm. to have those co- uncomfortable conversations and want to be in a safe space of people that are ready to have it with them. So that's there. Another, oh God, is there any other social media networks that I want y'all to follow me on at the moment? I think those are the main two. Um, if you're interested in any way, there's other, there's definitely other ones. I, I run like six, <laughs> right now on like Instagram, but those are the main two that y'all could definitely check out. Um, if you are interested, I believe I mentioned, um, the people's assembly the NOLA people's assembly. That's the organization that I am a part of when it comes to the, the marches, the rallies, and, um, just my overall work as a community organizer for the city of, and workers here. Yeah. So it's NOLA people's assembly on Instagram. And take them down NOLA because that's also, they're the same, they're almost the same people, but uh, take them down NOLA is more along the lines of like taking down structures or like, you know, monuments or statues. So they'll go under the name, take them down NOLA when those mm-hmm. things are happening. And when we are fighting for workers' rights and uh, citizens' rights, we'll go under the name of New Orleans People's Assembly. So check those two out. I'm involved in all of those. So yeah, I think that's about it. If I keep going any longer, like I could be here all day. So, <laughs> Thank you so much. This was really phenomenal. We were so excited to talk to you. And this honestly, like, I can't wait for people to hear this because I don't think anyone expected that we could actually talk to someone who knows what it's like to be Miss Victory and who's so brilliant about things in the world. We right found now. our so real I'm Miss Victory. Really excited. Please title this. Please title this something about this victory. That would make my day. <laughs> you're, yes. you're the real deal, but you're better because you actually like care about labor and people and <laughs> the, not things occurring in the books we've been reading. So, yeah. Oh my gosh. 
That, okay, that really affirmed me. I'm gonna go roller skate yes. and just be like, y'all call me Miss Victory. You need to. Today. You need to. <laughs> you are. Thank you.